Hello and welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review every first of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago, satirizing the dumb news of the month that was through hilarious op-eds and debates. This particular edition was recorded on March 4th. 2020 and unfortunately i forgot to press the button that made it record until after i had already done my opener so everything else is still in here but not that one. Oh well it was good imagine i said something really good and funny okay uh the show will start now i was gonna ask you if it was recording but <laughs> all right this the show is also a podcast so if you can't make it listen to it oh it's a podcast also, yes. Oh, snap. Okay, well, cool. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. You never know. You never know. That's the only way I get news. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast. We did that actually just as an ad. It was whatever. <laughs> okay, your first story out of three. Is that Harriet Tubman on a, on a bank debit card throwing up the Wakanda salute? Did that happen? I don't know. Sorry, two. Man calls police telling them his girlfriend has forced him to watch hours of chick flicks against his will. Story three. Trump claims responsibility for... Longest Black History Month in four years. <laughs> I, I, I had to make at least one of them. Get a laugh, I guess. I don't know. And which one's the lie? Yes. Um, there was no way that Harriet Tubman was on a debit card throwing at the Wakanda sign. She was definitely with a pistol. Hey, what? <laughs> somebody's head. I. There's a no, lot of new like... faces here, <laughs> and usually this is just, they just you just let them die on stage. <laughs> but whatever. So so okay. So let me let me set the rules. So it's not like it's more like did this headline actually exist, rather than like is this true or false? If that makes sense. Okay. So if that helps you. Well, everybody. They did, did that. That. <laughs> so <it's not> they <laughs> did do that. They did do that. What news do y'all know? They like, had that. I didn't see it. Um, damn, damn, that's scary. That's a scary world. Don't tell me he claimed it. He claimed. Oh no, what? is that the true one, or is that one of the true ones? I can't be asking. You, I think that's you the find false, a false one. one. Find a false one. I think one. the third one's the false one. Donald Trump did not claim claim that he had a. So this is where this gets tricky. I'm gonna give you a half. Point. It's not like a real. Like, I'm gonna give you a half point. All right, I'm gonna give you a half point. Oh, I'm scared. Because I've never done this before, but that's literally a headline from The Onion. Fucking a. Okay. <laughs> I've never done that before, but I liked it. I liked it so much. So that's why I was like, it's true. It is a headline, but it is false. It just sounded like some shit he would do. Man, okay, okay, gotcha. All right, all right, so I'm giving you a half point. Bet, bet, bet. So the second one did not happen. He was not forced to watch chick flicks. What happened was, there's a man, Cedar Rapids police was like, there's a man who forced a woman to watch Roots to understand racism. <laughs> I fucking... So I changed it a little bit. You know. Okay, there you go. There you go. Okay. Your second set of stories. Story one. America is losing the toilet race. I don't know what it is, but we're losing it. We're going down it. Story two. NASA forced, NASA forced to tell dumbasses that brooms can stand upright any day, and it has nothing to do with planetary positioning. <laughs> Story three. Ceramics teacher blames video games for children coming into his classroom and breaking plot, pots. Sorry. What was that last one again one more time? You, know, you ever play Zelda? Listen, I was Mario all day. Come on, man. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. But like a ceramics teacher, right? He's like, you know how motherfuckers always blaming shit for like shooting? Yeah. Because he's like, oh yeah, that motherfucker's playing GTA. But it's like that. But like, with Zelda? 
You know how they come in and you just break the pots and shit? Yeah. Like, I feel like that shit. has to be the fake headline then because now you're explaining it. Well, I have you told <laughs> you told me to explain it. <laughs> yo, 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 check, check it. You can ask me about any headline and I will explain it. Is the third one the fake headline? It happens to be. <laughs> It, ha- it happens to be, but I will explain any of them to the best of my knowledge. Bet. Got you, bet, bet. Motherfuckers. <laughs> All right, so what really happened is that parents uh, allowed an 11-year-old to drive a car because they were sick of him playing Grand Theft Auto all day, which makes sense somehow. I don't were, know. Were the parents... I ain't going to ask. No, no. I ain't going to like, here's a gun, kid. Just fucking go. All right, your third and final set of stories. Baskin Robbins to, to debut cookie ice cream with raisins instead of chocolate chips. I, okay, boomer. You know what's up. <laughs> Story two. Man uses fishing rod to steal Versace necklace from a store in Melbourne. <laughs> Story three. Garth Brooks faces backlash from country fans after endorsing Bernie Sanders with a jersey that was actually supporting a local NFL team. Barry Sanders, by the way. Wow. Number yeah. 20, which looked like 2020. Man. I can do this for any story, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said that second one happened in Melbourne, right? Yeah. A lot of weird shit happens in, uh, that's Australia? I, I yeah, I trust that. that. No, that shit definitely happened. Um, fuck. In Garth Brooks, you said? Yup. Would it would it be if different Gar- if I said Keith Urban? Like, well, because Garth Brooks kind of looked like a like a like a Bernie supporter, so I could I could see that. Mm. The nope. first headline's the uh, the fake headline. That is true. Damn, bro. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> so what's actually happening is that there will be a mayonnaise ice cream. Nah. <laughs> I think it's like in Japan though. So like, damn, is this the, the you can't have the it. blowback from Black History Month? Man, they're just throwing it like this. <laughs> Nah. <laughs> they like to start early. Man. But yeah, thank you for being on stage. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Applause. All right. Welcome back to the stage. Your host for the evening. Tom. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Another one for Kevin Johnson. We love it. We love it. Folks, for the podcast listeners at home who didn't get to hear my opener except forgot to press the button that made the recording start, can we all... Play, play along with me. Can we all agree that it was my best one ever? <laughs> Damn, folks. What can I say? I was on fire. <laughs> so, moving on. For our first, <laughs> our first op-ed reader of the evening is a writer and new transplant from Denver, Colorado. She likes to ride her bike, hang out with her dog, and is looking for new Thai restaurant recommendations, please welcome to the stage Donna Das. I'm not going to lie. I forgot that we had to send in bios. I meant to send you something more professional sounding than that, and I just never got around to it. But I'm still in the market for a Penang curry. If you have any suggestions, please write them on down, pass them on up. So last month, I actually saw the skewer for the first time. I was a contestant on Kevin's headline quiz. Yeah, and I won a beer. I was given a drink ticket. Um, excuse me. Uh, okay, uh, last month, I came to the skewer. Okay. Sorry, I'm a little nervous. But I wore my Stevie Nicks outfit. 
because I thought that I could get some witchy magic. But anyway, I thought tonight, for my second skewer debut, I could tell you guys a couple of jokes and talk about the election. How does that sound? Okay, thank you, thank you. I will start off by saying this. If you told me a couple of years ago that I would be on a stage in front of all you people talking about politics, I'd be very surprised. I used to be quite negligent when it came to politics. Four years ago, someone asked me, so what do you think about Super Tuesday? And I was like, I didn't know Marvel was making a new movie. What's this one about? And it's not that I didn't pay attention to politics. It was more so I just didn't care to follow it on a day-to-day basis. But then, in 2016, a xenophobic spray tan was elected into the highest office in the country. And you can imagine how pissed off I was being told that I didn't have enough experience for entry-level positions when this Category 5 dumbass was in charge of our foreign policy. He can't even spell Nepal, let alone find it on a map. And that's not even the lowest the bar is set. He's got over 20 counts of sexual misconduct against him. We told someone who has historically been unable to keep his hands to himself that he can have an entire arsenal of nuclear arms. So now I follow politics. It's more out of survival than interest. And there was a lot to follow this past month. So starting off with Groundhog's Day, wherein a stupid rodent told us how bleak our future is, followed by the State of the Union address, where we found out spring was early this year. I'm sorry, I'm nervous. I I, I misspoke. Um, There was also Valentine's, Oscars, President's Day, not to mention the Iowa caucus, Trump's acquittal, the Democratic debate in New Hampshire, its primary, the South Carolina debate, Nevada caucus, and also it was Black History Month. And considering how many candidates have been obviously pandering for African-American votes, this was not mentioned nearly as much as you think it would have been. (laughs) Something that was mentioned with an annoying regularity was the term electability, and that's what I wanted to talk to you guys about today. What it is, what it isn't, and what it means for our future. So, if you're going based on the word alone, with no examples, you might think it would mean someone who is most likely to become president of the United States. No. (laughs) You know who we've supported on the basis of electability? Joe Biden, who last month was floating in between third and fifth place. At that point, all he can expect to win is a participation award. (laughs) Hillary Clinton, who sure won the popular vote back in 2016, but smoke alarms don't put out the fire, the big orange fire. Al Gore, John Kerry, Nigel Dukakis, all electable, none of them presidents. In fact, these people are talked about so irregularly that everyone here born in the 90s didn't think twice at the fact that I said Nigel Dukakis when his name is actually Michael Dukakis. So, (laughs) if we're using a word... (laughs) So if we're using a word to describe the outcome of something and that thing does not happen... We can't keep using that word. That'd be like Wallace Shawn in The Princess Bride saying, inconceivable. (laughs) That'd be like if we gave Rush Limbaugh the Medal of Freedom. So then, if electability doesn't mean the candidate that's most likely to become president, maybe it means the one who has received the most votes. Also, no. In fact, oftentimes, (laughs) oftentimes, the top contender is omitted 
from the conversation entirely. Following the polls in New Hampshire, New York Times headlines read, Pete finishes second, Amy's our third. That sounds less like breaking news than it does someone trying to convince you that their marriage isn't falling apart. <laughs> I forgot the next part. Uh, okay, regardless, electability does not necessarily mean that someone is the frontrunner, and a frontrunner isn't necessarily electable. But shouldn't they be, though? <laughs> like, isn't that kind of like the proof is in the pudding sort of stuff? And if we're not going to give it to them after, like, one win, because maybe one win's a fluke, maybe we can give it to them after, I don't know, three times. And I'm not even saying those three times have to be in a row. That would be inconceivable. <laughs> so you might be feeling a little bit gaslighted by all of this information, by your political pundits, your government, news media, etc. And that makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, electability is kind of used to maintain a status quo. It's kind of used to pull in people who are moderates, undecided voters, or people who think that Super Tuesday wears a cape. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem with that is a couple of things. Electability assumes that people are voting and they're not. And it also, it also makes you think that we exist in the middle, which we don't. I don't know if you've noticed, but things have been kind of bananas the past couple of years. And this is just a, a, just a result of everything fracturing the past couple of decades. So I will leave you with this. I'm not going to be here to convince you guys to vote for someone because you're here on a Wednesday night to hear political satire. You're a bunch of fucking nerds, and I know you're dependable. <laughs> <laughs> but I will leave you with this. So, my mom just became a naturalized citizen in 2019. Yeah, yeah. Give it up for her. She lives in Colorado. And I saw that big old envelope in the mail, and I was like, Mom, this is your ballot. This is something that you haven't been able to do in the 20-plus years that you've been in this country. You get to pick whoever you want. Don't let Dad tell you otherwise. Don't let, if you wanted to put me down, you can do that too. <laughs> but you get to decide who you want to be president of the United States of America, and you get to mail it in, and your vote counts. And she was like, Donna, that is a jury summons. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate you guys. Oh my goodness. <laughs> One more time for Donna Doss, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you've identified a very real truth about this cure. It's a lot of times I'm like, should I, should, like, should I, when I'm up here, like, explicitly endorse a specific candidate? Like, is that, like, is that an ethical thing to do? Or is it, ethical, is it unethical to, to not do that? And then I'm just like, who am I going to fuck? Like, who's left to convince? <laughs> Uh, so I don't do it. Uh, our next op-ed reader is an anxious law student by day and an anxious writer-comedian by night. 
You can find him on Twitter once he lands a summer job. Please welcome to the stage, Dan Lastres. Thank you, Thomas. It's no surprise, and no... I'm actually going to leave that in there. Hang on. That's a bad idea. Rough start. Hang on. Okay. It's too short. I don't know how to do it. I'm going to do this one. Would you mind holding that? Thank you. Thank you. All right. Everybody give it up for Darian, my hero. Just tighten it. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Let it go. See if it stays. It stays. We live in terrifying times. And, uh... This is alarming. I'm going to step in one more time here. Oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Release that. Ooh, ooh. Optimal. Oh, no, 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 no. There we go. All right. One more time for Melissa and Darian. This doesn't count towards my time. We live in terrifying times, but these days I find myself a little less terrified, thanks to the works of H.P. Lovecraft, among others. I was first introduced to the extended Lovecraft universe uh, in 2014. Life was simpler back then. Obama was president, the Republican Party looked destined for irrelevancy, and Joe Biden looked destined for retirement. But none of that concerned me much. I was a senior in high school, and at the time, my main concern was solidifying the coolest subgroup in my cavalcade of nerd friends, the emo gamer nerds. Now, back in 2014, the emo gamer nerds foresaw that the next decade would be a ceaseless parade of grotesque horrors and unabashed cruelty. The emo gamers were already attuned to living lives defined by misery, dread, and escapist pleasure-seeking, things that put them ahead of the curve for the times we now live in. But we started to foreshadow Something terrible, a nightmare planted in our brains by Cthulhu himself. The emo gamer nerds anticipated the coming darkness, and we took steps to prepare ourselves. We started to run a tabletop role-playing game called Call of Cthulhu, featuring a story my friend Tom wrote. Not that Tom, different Tom. He spun together a tale combining lizard people walking among us, human trafficking, theocratic cults, and police corruption set amidst the crumbling infrastructure of modern-day Chicago. And it was a quintessential Lovecraftian tale. The best works written or inspired by Howitzer Philadelphia Lovecraft are all synthesizing perfectly rational fears and anxieties into a story that speaks to those fears and anxieties and gives you a chance to use ham-fisted exaggeration and cartoonish levels of violence that would put an anime to shame to tackle those feelings. Now, the works of Howard Phillips Lovecraft unfortunately did not save us in this case. Our game ended when a botched eavesdropping operation killed most of us and burnt down all of Grant Park. <laughs> Nonetheless, the opportunity to confront and lampoon those anxieties turned out to be quite beneficial. It got me permanently hooked on those games and the stories you can tell through them. 
For example, it's perfectly rational to assume that the powers that be are conspiring to profit at your expense. And while you can't go Aaron Brockovich and concretely prove that PG&E is putting hexavalent chromium into the water supply, you're kind of right anyway. (laughs) Now, feeling that oppression without any concrete proof to justify it makes you feel paranoid. And expressing that tension in a story form completely devoid of any subtlety can make you feel paradoxically less insane. In a Call of Cthulhu game I ran a few years later, I seeded the Wild West with evil Pinkerton detectives, smuggling magical talismans across the landscape for the benefit of a sex cult of robber barons who were doing their own seeding. Now, the plot was inspired by the American tradition of violent and ruthless extractivism, in particular, the confrontation at Standing Rock that was happening that very summer. However, the players, once again, barely managed to stop the rapacious capitalists, and the sinister plot... They never truly learned whether the sex cult leader, Jefferson Eckstein, killed himself either. (laughs) But with that story, my goal was to recreate the experience of struggling against really overwhelming odds and the nagging uncertainty of a case where justice is denied and the truth may never be fully revealed. And not to exaggerate, these games cured my anxiety, which is totally gone now. I am not shaking. But these games also gave me the power to accurately predict the future. But before I get any further into that, I have to address the racist elephant in the room. I am not talking about the GOP logo. I am talking about the other racist elephant in the room, Howdy Partner Lovecraft. Now, in 19... Oh, excuse me. In 1890, Honolulu Pagliacci Lovecraft was born into a well-to-do New England family, the kind with a family tree, a family crest, and pure uncut anglophilia inbred into their DNA. Now, his father suffered from hallucinations, was committed two years after his birth, and died of syphilitic madness. But his mother was luckily incredibly overbearing. (laughs) Hound dog fallopian Lovecraft himself was a sickly and anxious sad boy. He once remarked that everything since the 1700s struck him as a grotesque nightmare. And by this, he meant the modernizing of the economy, changing social values, race mixing, and the improving scientific understanding of mankind's small place in the universe. He was a fragile whelp through and through. And at his most creative, he sublimated those insecurities and imagined a universe full of ancient beings and alien races that could destroy a civilization without even a thought. And at his least creative. He could name his cat something extraordinarily racist that I will not repeat, even if it's lip-syncing to a rap song. (laughs) At 18, hemisphere philandering Lovecraft gave up his dream of becoming an astronomer. Now, many of you may be thinking that you're bad at math. I can tell from the density of jean jackets and undercuts that this room is dense with liberal arts degrees. (laughs) Looking at you. Looking at you, twee motherfuckers. (sighs) But uh, Hunter Phillips' head, Lovecraft, was so bad at math that it caused him to have a nervous breakdown, following, followed by nearly a decade of deep depression and self-isolation. Now, once he emerged from the prolonged mental sabbatical his meager privilege afforded him, he published a xenophobic magazine literally called The Conservative. It espoused the worst of the early 20th century's race science and white fragility that would make Jordan Peterson blush if he hadn't consumed so much beef and clonopin that he's been kidnapped and put in a coma. <laughs> Like Jordan Peterson, Holland Phalanx Lovecraft was a prolific poster. Like many of today's most followed posters, he was a white man obsessed with his diminishing status in society. 
Like every generation of conservative ideologues, he would not let the old social order go gently into that good night. He would post, post against the dying of the white supremacy. And, uh, yeah, the magazine did seem to work. It rapidly built him an extended correspondence network with a following of racist reply guys and Aryan simps. But uh, they didn't seem to mind his affinity for extraneous adjectives. Uh, Indeed, they might have rightfully and magnanimously appreciated his sordid, excessive, obsequious, and perhaps occasionally tiresome devotion to adjectives, adverbs, descriptives, and truly lengthily Baroque invectives, oozing bathos and pretense like a discarded fruit bursting with a rainbow of rot and parasites. But one thing's for sure. They loved how Lovecraft told dozens of variations on a simple story. Inquisitive person discovers something that breaks the law of nature, and it either kills them or drives them insane. Like (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Now, Hermione Philomena Lovecraft had his critics as well. They cite his repetitive narrative structure, his penchant for describing things as indescribably frightening, lazy, and his obsessive overuse of the word eldritch as proof that Lovecraft was something of a one-trick pony. And they were right. But for one moment set aside that the pony was virulently racist. And you can see that it's a pretty impressive trick. (laughs) Take any classic horror trope from vampires and ghosts to asylums and reanimating the dead, and there's a solid chance Lovecraft did it justice in his own take with a tinge of racism. His sweeping backdrops of hostile and incomprehensible universes were populated with these actually quite compelling stories. As time went on, Hooters Fupa Lovecraft grew more destitute and desperate to escape the banality of his daily life. His writing also improved as he grew ever more adept at translating the fears and anxieties of his era into the two themes that made his stories potent. Number one, an inhospitable, indifferent, and outright dumb cosmological order. Second, protagonists who discover forces too old and powerful for them to comprehend without being physically or psychologically obliterated. These themes have caused or inspired thousands of authors, poets, game designers, and goth teens to make their own less totally racist contributions to the Cthulhuverse. Lovecraft's themes have inspired a diverse array of contemporary artists from Guillermo del Toro, Stephen King, Metallica, Hanna-Barbera, Don, uh, Dan Harmon, the producers of The Masked Singer, and the world's bravest troops are hentai artists. <laughs> Hospital Phosphorus Lovecraft was a deeply flawed man, uh, but he popularized a method for depicting a deeply human experience. At one time or another, we have all felt unable to confront unfathomable evil and our own cosmic insignificance. And we carry on, despite the uncertainty of everything in life, except for death, taxes, and chafing. But just like the best Lovecraft and Lovecraft-inspired stories, the best Lovecraftian games have players grapple with these evils so old and so inconceivably powerful that they will be driven insane trying to change the course of fate, and they can even have little mutilation as a treat. That experience is so endemic to our humanity that there is a Cthulhu-based game for every setting and time period that might give you some anxiety. No matter the source, there's a game that will scratch that itch. Trail of Cthulhu, my favorite, is an attempt... Uh, excuse me, is playable in any time period from the Industrial Revolution to the modern era, and it is the go-to for mysteries worth investigating, whatever the cost. Fall of Delta Green sets players in the chaotic 1960s, where they become agents of what is basically an eldritch fusion of the CIA and Space Force. And uh, I particularly love this game because you get to travel the world investigating supernatural threats, navigating the complex politics of the Cold War, and, of course, America's sprawling military-industrial complex, and... Honestly, I find that one personally cathartic as a Cuban-American who's 
Cultural and historical awareness was forged in the fires of the confusing but sexy 1960s. <laughs> now, that may not work for some of you. I'm sure a lot of folks here are struggling with plague anxiety. Dark Ages Cthulhu. I'm sure a lot of you are trying to accept that uh, the existential threat of climate change will be faced with freaky weirdos like Trump, Elon Musk, and Emmanuel Macron at the helm. But panic not, because there are dozens of Cthulhu games and stories set in our inevitably dumb and bloody future. In all of these games and others, characters can try and even perhaps moderately succeed in their efforts to understand and mitigate the evil plots and apocalyptic events. But in the end, they are motes of dust, too primitive to comprehend the dark truths. And that shit is deeply relatable. Everything in our world is alarmingly precarious, no matter what scale you measure on. The biological, political, ecological, historical, and cosmological worlds we inhabit are but houses of cards battered by the winds of time. Chaos is inescapable. Madness, decay, and death are inevitable. And to quote a sentient trans-dimensional space crab imagined by Trail of Cthulhu creator Ken Haidt, Everything is contingent. Humans are nothing but milk. Sensitive, wet sacks of meat, too powerful and too intelligent for their own good. And indeed, madness and death are inevitable. But these games are a lot more fun if you learn this, accept it, and persevere in spite of it. Now, I applied the same logic to my own existence, and I found that I could actually manage and sometimes enjoy the twilight of the Second American Republic. <laughs> The dawn of the Anthropocene Age may be defined by an increasingly uninhabitable planet, and uh, frankly, who knows? That could be a lot of fun. <laughs> Mad Max seemed cool. I have exactly one friend with exactly one gun, so my chances aren't zero. <laughs> but three weeks ago, The Guardian published an article on the worst-case scenario for the climate in 2050. It was ominously titled, The Only Uncertainty is How Long Will Last. Chilling. But the article didn't tell me anything new about the science of climate change. It didn't tell me humanity's chances of stopping it. It didn't tell me anything new about how Kentucky Fried fucked we are. But it was the apocalyptic capstone on a pyramid of atrocities and doom, which I had been mentally building for months. It's not a question of if local newspapers will be wiped out, but when. It's not a question of if COVID-19 will hit major urban cities in America, but when. It's not a question of if our judiciary will survive and probably suffer and die from a chronic case of federalist society, but when. It's not a question of if Rod Blagojevich will run for office, but when. And it's not a question of if we can avert any of these catastrophes, but when they will inevitably strike. Now, the diagnosis of not if, but when is nothing new. And frankly, the recent uptake is partially to blame on the hot take industrial complex. Things however, are getting worse. And in terrifying times like these, that pyramid of anxiety and existential terror that I built would normally devour me. After all, its bricks are made from the finest pessimism. Baked in kilns fueled by 20 years of post-9-11 cynicism and built on a solid foundation of generalized anxiety disorder, it menacingly looms in the background of just about everything I think, do, read, and feel. Like the Cathedral of La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, it, frankly, is a hideous and endless affair. <laughs> it gets taller day by day, and every day, life starts to resemble more and more of a Lovecraftian nightmare. There's the whole white supremacy thing, of course, but there's also the inescapable fact that our government and ruling class are a grotesque assembly of incomprehensible horrors, frankly. Just a pantheon of cruel and indifferent gods capable of causing vast suffering through their actions and, more often, their inaction. Now... 
when I read that climate change article, I attempted to steal the blueprint for my pyramid of despair. I rolled for architecture and got a six, a critical success. It showed me that the ominous predictor, if not when, was in fact the load-bearing thought holding the entire pyramid up. Now, blueprints in hand, I resolved to dismantle that unholy pyramid of terror, using the same attitude that gets me through the Cthulhuverse games. To be the best Lovecraftian investigators, you have to embrace the absolute contingency in life. Dare to skirt the line between comprehension and insanity as long as you can, because what other choice do you have? As a player, you know your character will eventually go mad or die horrifically, and newer players respond quite naturally to that. They play conservatively, they avoid risks, they bask in the bliss of ignorance, but as time goes on and they realize how boring that is, <laughs> characters get physically disfigured and repeatedly traumatized, and they get more comfortable risking and even sacrificing their health, sanity, and morals in service of each other, and sometimes even in service of just the story. They become more knowledgeable about our universe's dark secrets, more adept at manipulating the dark arts to their benefit, and strangely hopeful in the face of their inevitable annihilation. One must imagine the players happy, grabbing the dice and rolling the character uphill, knowing they could accomplish some great things, even if it inevitably ends with them being crushed by the forces of time and space. Because at the end, the destination is always death, and the journey to annihilation is all we really have. An experienced player of Lovecraftian horror games doesn't bother with optimism, that naive emotion and helpless posture to the future. The experienced player embodies Miriam Kaba's maxim that hope is a discipline, a conscientious effort to fight for what is good and just in the face of very bleak odds and absolute uncertainty. I know not everyone can relate to this. Maybe you hate tabletop games or abhor the horror genre or won't support work derived from someone as deeply canceled as horticulture Philippians to Lovecraft. <laughs> And maybe you're completely immune to brilliant extended metaphors about an anxiety pyramid. That's not my fault. <laughs> but there is still hope. You can escape the not if but when mindset if you remember two things. First, remember that asking if shit will hit the fan is pointless. We know the answer. It, it, it will. It was always going to. It always does. And it will inevitably get on your favorite twee sweater or undercut. <laughs> but asking... If shit will hit the fan, or excuse me, asking when will shit hit the fan is also pointless. Because we know the answer. The linear flow of time is an illusion conjured up by the old one, Yogg-Sothoth, who sits up high in his tower at the center of the universe, watching the host of demonic horrors parade around in an endless orbit, anchoring every conceivable part of our vast universe. Every monstrous creature populating the heavens is just an aspect of the elder god, Sothoth, and simultaneously experiencing every good, bad, and boring thing that has ever happened and will ever happen across every dimension all at once. And as all of that happens... As we sit here tonight and every night and forever, the shit is hitting the fan. It will never stop. So enjoy the beautiful ways that it smears on the walls like a fecal Jackson Pollock. <laughs> also, don't open your mouth to ask if or when. You'll get shit in it. <laughs> Before I end this sermon, I have to give you one last task. And no, it's not go in peace to love and serve the Lord God, Haster. When you leave here and return to the eternal challenge of balancing between the things you can accept and the things you must change, remember this. Lovecraft faced the darkness alone, and it consumed him. Win or lose, the only way to enjoy a Lovecraftian game is to take on the darkness together. Every character will go mad or die one day, but be sure to cherish the opportunity to chip away at your health and sanity points with love, joy, and even a little hope. 
May our Lord God Cthulhu, high priest of the void and low priest of the abyss, bless you and keep you. May he make his horrible, titanic, Davy Jones-ass-looking face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord Cthulhu lift up his indescribably terrible countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you. Give it up once more for Dan Las Trace, everybody. One time in college, I got a book of H.P. Lovecraft stories, and Dan pointed out correctly that this, this mf or use Eldritch every other sentence. But I think a less publicized thing that he does that's extremely annoying, uh, I was reading, and every time he said fantasy or fantastical, mf or would use a PH, and I shut the book. <laughs> All right, so moving right along, our third op-ed writer of the evening, Elisa Rosenthal, is a comedian, musician, and teaching artist. She teaches at the Old Town School of Folk Music and Looking Glass Theater by day, and by night you can find her performing original music as her vaudeville alter ego, Plucky Rosenthal, or as the MC for the Chicago League of Lady Arm Wrestlers as her alter ego, Harry Scary. Follow along at Elisa Rosenthal on, on social media. Please welcome Elisa! I must say, it was very satisfying lady splaining this microphone to you. <laughs> and the teacher in me just wants everyone to know, always just go for the thing with your fist. It's all, that's the upy down. You always want that. Okay. At the times that are the most upsetting, the most politically charged, the most filled with stress scrolling, as one of my friends just called it, Escapism becomes one of the more appealing isms of the moam. I'm someone who watches a lot of trash TV to begin with, and lately, like, what even are books anymore? <laughs> Thusly, I bring you this month in fluff news. Subtitle, I'm on a brief sabbatical to, hash, to hashtag Bachelor Nation. <laughs> That's right. Ten weeks of pure primetime ABC liquid garbage is about to come to its ultimate climax. The Bachelor finale is next week! Yeah! I'm already sensing this is a room full of people that don't watch it. Buckle up! <laughs> this will sell and not sell you on it. Ah! Oh, the finale is next week. Oh, the sweet, sweet respite of death. I don't even care who Pilot Pete marries anymore. I just want my Monday nights back. I used to do crossword puzzles and clean my apartment and cook a nice meal, but the G-men at ABC are just too skilled at making compelling television. <laughs> I digress. Um, for those of you not already a member of hashtag Bachelor Nation, gird your virginal eyes with your life. But those of us who have already gotten the metaphorical first face tattoo, we might as well just get the whole frontal lobe filled in at this point. <laughs> to catch you up, Peter Weber, a.k.a. Pilot Pete, was the heartbreaking second runner-up during Alabama Hannah's, Hannah's season of The Bachelorette. As we all watched in literal horror that the shitty musician from Nashville who wore those trendy floppy hats and that weird skinny scarf thing that only TV costume designers find chic... 
And he was named Jed, like actually Jed. And he was doing better than a cute pilot. And also that guy, Tyler, who was tall and handsome and actually, I'm pretty sure, a model and volunteered with kids and had sexy vocal fry. And whose only flaw was that he was from Florida. Which in Bachelor Nation is actually a genuine asset. So, spoiler alert, Hannah axes Peter, who, as a fellow sad boy, I understood his tears. And then also axes Tyler, who's now dating Gigi Hadid or some other hot celebrity that I definitely know who they are. <laughs> and chooses Jed, inexplicable Jed. And, and then he sends an oopsie text to his best friend saying he just won that the producers definitely got a hold of immediately, and which also wouldn't be quite so icky if he also also hadn't had a girlfriend back home. This shit is juicy. <laughs> the engagement is off. Hannah brutally goes through multiple rounds of reality TV-related bullshit, and the stage is perfectly set for the male punching bag the entire world needs right now, your 2020 bachelor himself, Pilot Pete. 30 women compete for his attention, and he'll select one as his final obligatory, like, eight-ish month engagement uh, slash social media ally. I love Peter as a choice for The Bachelor. He meets all the tried-and-true dating show tropes. Tall, dark, and baby-faced. And he really feels feelings and isn't afraid to cry, which is the hallmark of a truly great reality TV lead. And his half-Cuban heritage brings loads of Spanish language to this deeply conservative franchise, and I am here for it. The cast of characters starts out legit promising. We have multiple women who run their own businesses, and the way they excitedly gab and empower each other in the house makes me feel like these are some gals I'd be friends with. There's nothing overtly dramatic or any producer-driven cattiness or... Oh, oh no, wait. I just, I just had to wait. Um, there it is. Yep, yep. Five, five minutes in. Yep, life is a nightmare. Um, I'll spare you the rundown of the entire list of 30 women, but I'm tempted to. Uh, <laughs> but if you're ever having a bad day and you need to feel better, Watch the first two minutes of any The Women Tell All special where they go through the names of people you're pretty sure have never been on TV before. It's like Natasha, Kiara, Megan. And it's just blank face after blank face. Okay, but here are some of my faves. Kelly, the no-nonsense lawyer from Chicago who Peter met in real life in a hotel lobby before the show started filming. And I'm pretty sure the producers found her and were like, you should, we'll give you lots of money. Come be on our show. Um, she's legit too smart and accomplished for this show. Um, and in her promo at the beginning, she's shown walking around the East Bank Club. So she's fine. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, she didn't make it to the final two, um, and also at 27 years old, she's so brave. But her best insight was calling Peter out for not actually looking for a wife, cut to a shot of him surrounded by the remaining women, who are all literal carbon copies of each other, at five foot one with brown hair and Disney princess eyes. You're not even subtle, Peter. <laughs> My next favorite is McKenna, the fashion blogger, who is the human personification of a live journal blog circa 2002, who says things like, I need that time with him for my open asterisk, whole heart closed asterisk, and goes on hollow diatribes about how being mean sucks, and also spells her name M-Y-K-E-N-N-A, which I can't help but read as my Kenna. Um, <laughs> like MySpace, and she really is the embodiment of all pre-Facebook social media. 
Next, we have Kelsey, whose big claim to fame is Champagne Gate. I'm really catching you all up on some hot pop culture. <laughs> um, she brought a bottle of very significant champagne all the way from home in Des Moines. And then the producers preset it near Peter and a different woman. So they obviously drank it all. Then Peter has to find Kelsey a different bottle of champagne to get her to stop crying. She goes to take a swig straight from the bottle in a rock and roll act of giving no shits and ends up taking a money shot of champ to the face. I hate the term money shot, but it's incredible that ABC aired this, so I really need to paint you a picture of how graphic it is. It exists as a GIF. It's incredible. Thank you. Are you watching? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm spinning such a yarn up here, right? Okay. Um, so Kelsey was definitely portrayed as the villain, but she quickly became my favorite for some truly wonderful lines. Upon being accused of pill popping, she dropped the gem, just Xanax and birth control. <laughs> She's so great. What a gift. And that brings us to the final two. Hannah Ann and Madison, who are two women I genuinely cannot distinguish from each other. They're both models. They're both petite with long brown hair. Madison is more beautiful, but Hannah Ann is chiller and more DTF. So what's a pilot to do? Honestly, I still don't care who he picks. I just want to get one step closer to the next season of Bachelor in Paradise, which is the only reason we're all watching this franchise, right? <laughs> it's less producer-driven. It's more, I'm pretty sure, actual feelings. There are bisexuality plot lines. It's very exciting. Okay. Um, the producers behind this show have found a good thing. The formula is irresistible, the people are beautiful to look at, and those brief glimpses of real feelings in a pressure cooker situation is And how interesting that a show that's so deep, deeply fueled by conservative Christian values and seemingly squeaky clean romance ideals is at its core a show that argues that polyamory works! <laughs> and that premarital sex with a partner is perhaps a vital part of the dating process! This is subversive shit! Okay, don't get me wrong. I've had the fantasy of if I were The Bachelorette. Hi, I'm Elisa. I'm the oldest person to ever be on this show at 34. Uh, I'm looking for love with my whole heart, even the parts that have been charred off due to multiple relationships where I've been able to communicate what I bought, but my partner hasn't. And then 30-some limos pull up, and it's all lanky philosophy majors and classes. <laughs> and, like, three women who look like Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Not even subtle, Peter. Okay, so and this particular season, Peter early on neglects a bunch of the women to favor a few of the more intoxicatingly dramatic ones. And oh boy, do the neglected women give it to him. The montage of one-on-one -on -one chats of him just being berated, sheepishly looking to the women and saying things like, I hear you. I'm sorry. It's just... He's maybe not the man we deserve, because what pilot from California is? But he's the one we need. The Bachelor franchise has been moving in an ever so slightly progressive and ever so feminist direction. And seeing our lead beautifully tanned from time off in Chile um, and Cleveland when they ran out of budget. <laughs> it was the best. They're like, ladies, we're going to Cleveland! And they're all like, eh. <laughs> This show's so good. Uh, and he has a giant scar across his forehead from an off-time golf cart injury that they 
access the security cam footage of and have showed it on the show no less than 10 times. <laughs> Watching him have to apologize to the 30 women he's dating time and again for things he did and also didn't do because his one true goal from the show that he's repeated over and over again is that he just wants someone to love him. You get it, Bridget Jones. It's a tiny, tiny bit of balm on the long-running gash that's been being a woman in the world over the last four years. Thank you. Oh, my God. It's so easy once you know. One more, t- what? One more time for Elisa Rosenthal. All right, our final op-ed reader of the evening is Ian Randall. Ian Randall is an educator and performer-ish person now living in Kawagoe. He was lucky enough to perform with the skewer previously, as well as with the caffeine theater. This part isn't what he wrote down. I'm just going to tell you all. Uh, The first ever skewer, we had someone drop out that day, and we're like, what? Oh, no. We don't have a show. And uh, I forget how Ian got involved, but uh, Ian was like, I'll do it. And he wrote his piece that day, and it fucking ruled. Uh, Thank you for saving the skewer, Ian. Uh, Anyway, Ian, uh, (laughs) back to his little bio. Ian misses quenchers. He misses you. He loves Kelly. He loves you. He's a dork. Please welcome Ian Randall. This dude rules. I was trying to watch. I was trying to watch. Uh, Yeah, so uh, how I got involved with the the person who dropped out, uh, to give credit where credit's due, her her name is Perry. Uh, She's incredible. Uh, And she's like, hey, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much for that opportunity. Uh, And, yeah, so anyway. uh, Yeah, I have nothing important to say, so I wrote a listicle. Uh, (laughs) Hoot! Are you an adjunct instructor in love with Chicago? But even more in love with the idea of getting to see the world, working at one and not four schools, and seeing a doctor someday. Are you a meh performer and a meh educator who feels they need some more experiences to mine and are too mediocre to harness the power of fiction? (laughs) Did you recently realize that the job you were hoping was going to go full-time is stringing you along like a set of plastic pearls at the build-your-own-rosary-craft-hour in the most boring summer camp for Catholic kids? Well, then borrow some cash for a passport, cast your net wide, and go to Saitama! Saitama, the Indiana of Tokyo. (laughs) Saitama, you like sweet potatoes? We got a sweet potato for a mascot. (laughs) Saitama, yes, they do have mayonnaise ice cream, and it tastes really bad. But really good, too. Honky. Uh, Okay. Saitama. Unlike the character of the same name from One Punch Man, it won't kill you with one punch. 
So going to Japan can help expand your lazy references to pop culture that you don't fully engage in like you just did there. Sure, but what else can you do? Well, so grab your second-person writing trope hat, because here's a list of the top eight things to do when living abroad and fearing your country is slipping further into fascism. Number eight, keep abreast of politics at home. Warning, time travel zone ahead. Welcome back to the fall of 2016. An arbitrary point on the general hellscape, but one that stands out in the narrative of a more specific hellscape. Make the most out of your 14-15 hour time difference and check the end of the day news as much as you can. Talk to your left-leaning co-workers about how you like the way those 538 poll results look and laugh at how silly it all looks from a distance. Laugh! Laugh! And then stop laughing as you sit midday in a meeting with 30-something other very disappointed teachers and two who are arguably too happy about the wait, wondering, wait, what are we doing? How that, uh, should, should we go back? What do we, what do we do about this? Number seven. Take part in cross-cultural conversations. Dive deep into discussions with other like-minded expatriates. Spend some time talking to the Turkish mover that you hired. Listen to and support his solid criticisms about Erdogan and his policies. Listen to and support his concerns about the growth of conservatism and the shrinking of the secular culture of his nature. Listen when he says, but Trump is different. Trump is just a patriot. It's not like he's changing everything that your country was founded on feel very unsure about how to respond to that. Eventually change the conversation to discussion about vending machines. Number six, festivals galore. Nearly every week there are celebrations in the park, so get outside, you old so-and-so. Come on, go to the Vietnamese festival in Yoyogi. Go to that hip-hop dancing competition. Hey, it's five in the Mayo, so get to Cinco de Mayo. Be amazed at how many Jamaican and Peruvian food stalls there are. Sincerely enjoy the tango group, but be sure that this isn't from Mexico either, right? And you know what else helps your confusion over what is or isn't appropriate for the celebration of a Mexican holiday? Seeing your first MAGA hat in public! Yeah, there it is, across a crowded crowd on the head of a very large either current military member or current military hairstyle cosplayer. <laughs> See, there's always something, a little something, letting you know what's happening back home and how you're not doing enough about it. Number five, maybe try doing something about it. Ensure that you're registered to vote via mail. Watch for local elections and see which candidates make you a little less vomity. Watch your girlfriend's Floridian absentee ballot never arrive for some reason. Watch streaming videos of the mayoral debates in your southern Illinois city you're registered in and make an easy joke of two. And then donate erratically to various political and educational groups before you uh, support. And then tell yourself, well, you know, something's better than nothing, right? Something's better than nothing, right? Something's better than nothing, right? Right, right. Believe it. Then don't believe it. Then believe it again. Then don't believe it. Feel that egoism of not being sure if you are part of the problem. As long as it's about you, it's all gravy, you solipsistic baby. Number four, spiral. 
Number three, travel. <laughs> Go to places you've never seen or dreamed that you would get to visit. Swim with whale sharks off the coast of the Philippines. Climb up thousands of stairs in Kotor. Look at beautiful lanterns illuminating the city of Hoi An. Ask the question and answer the question. So, hey, uh, what do you think about Trump? Answer it in every single country, in every degree of specificity, ranging from I do not like him to I fucking hate him, but unfortunately, he is only a running orange venereal sore symptom of some of the worst aspects of the U.S. society, so even if when he's out under any means necessary, there is a laundry list of horrors that need to be dealt with. Try to convey as much as the last part into the I don't like him sentence. <laughs> And number two, focus on your students. Use as many unsubstantiated claims spewed into the air by the politicians back home to show why sources for said claims need to be vetted and shared with at least a modicum of intellectual humility. Watch as senators claim scientists in China manufactured the coronavirus. Discuss the importance of having sources relying on the ideas of experts. Listening to anti-intellectual drumbeat towards experts in a variety of fields hits a slipknot fucking... Uh, Gene Krupa level as science is not really my thing. Mike fucking Pence is put in charge responding to a public health crisis and watches holy water replaces hand sanitizer. Really hammer home the importance of building a well of knowledge through work and reading and inquiry and discussion and see literal billionaires subvert and undermine processes through dimp vomiting cash into the mouths of anyone nearby and luckily being very unsuccessful after 101 days and then develop a fun way to talk about the concept of collocations in language using the I have a pen I have an apple oh apple pen number one come home and visit see a ton of friends who are doing what they can to say positive, effective, and sane. Find and learn about entirely other ways this current administration is cribbing plays from the Nazis directly, like potentially mandating that all federal buildings now on be designed in a neoclassical style, or that according to research from NAFSA, the Association of International Educators, the amount of international students enrolling in U.S. schools right now is steadily going down, with the primary reasons uh, decline being an increase in visa denials initially and changes in the overall social and political uh, environment. Listen. Listen for new ways to help and points to teach. Listen. Listen. Listen as the Democratic Party shits the bed one more magical time. Listen, and then sign another contract with your school, and then just keep that party rolling sweet potatoes! Thank you. Thank you. And one more time, a round of applause for Ian Randall. Fucking incredible. Very glad we could have you back. Now, before we move on with the rest of our uh, show... You may have noticed that there was a donation bucket as you entered. All that money is going to be given directly to the performers so that they get paid for doing art for you because that's important. We like that. Um, 
if you don't have any cash or don't want to pay, that's fine. You don't have to. But we have this horrible hat for weirdos. <laughs> We're going to be passing this around. If you want, if you thought that this shit was just so good, everyone rules, ah, oh, I wish I could give them a dollar bill. Well, now is your chance to do that. <laughs> Pass that around. Don't steal from it. I, you wouldn't, right? <laughs> I mean, you could. Who would know? Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm calling it like it is. I don't like it, but it's the truth. <laughs> All right, so, Kevin, Kevin Johnson, you think it's about time for your second round of the news quiz? I think it's time for the second round of the news quiz. I think it's about time. Let's do it. I just want to say that you would know that you have stolen, so don't do it. What the fuck? Anyway, I need another volunteer. Someone. Anyone. All right. That's cool. Oh, I, I was fucking shit, man. What's up with these mics? I'm not touching it anymore. All right. What's your name? I'm Daniel. Daniel. Yes. Right. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Hi, crowd. Yes. All right. So you were here earlier, right? You know how this works. Several months ago, yes. I meant I meant earlier tonight. Oh, yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> I've been right. here the whole time. Okay, that's good. That's good, you know. All right. Your first story. Multiple penis men still at large. That's all it is. Sounds good. That's all you get. Story two. A town cut its only policeman. So he turned in his uniform and walked out in his underwear. Hmm? Hmm? Definitely hmm? happened. Definitely. Okay. Story I would have done it. Right. <laughs> you would have done it or you have done it? No comment. All right. Story three. Inspired by Shaggy's 1999 hit song, the It Wasn't Me Challenge has social media filming their daring getaways from Trists. Trists? Trists? Trists. 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 Okay. Sexual Trists. Come I was on. Like, I, it's like, I should, you just got to believe in myself, you know? That's all that matters. The second one's too relatable to be true. I mean, to be false, I mean. So it has to be the first or the third. That does sound like a challenge that could happen. What was the first again? Multiple penis men still at large. That sounds exactly like what a headline would read. So I'm going to go with the third. Third's false. You are correct. (laughs) There's like an an enormous amount of logic being put into all of these. And like, I feel like it's all wrong because I can see it. But then you still get the right thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. All right, so yes, the third one is incorrect. It is actually, thanks to Buffalo Wild Wings, Bone Thugs in Harmony is now Boneless Thugs in Harmony. Lazy Bone boycotted it and didn't change his name. I guess he's the only one with a backbone. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely crazy, or crazy boneless. Your second set of stories. After Super Bowl halftime show makes Ohio minister too horny. He says he'll sue for $867 trillion. Did that happen? Who knows? Story two. U.S. runner finishes her first ever marathon. Her second will be at the Tokyo Olympics. Hmm. Story three. 
Pope tells Catholics to give up online dating for Lent. It's difficult. So the first one's definitely... I mean, it was 860 trillion, you said? 867 trillion, to be exact. So that's the economy for the next 50 years. So that seems implausible, but many claims are. Second was about the marathons. Yeah. Her second marathon's going to be in the Olympics. Yeah. You see, if she's a you know, long-distance runner, does a lot of 10Ks or things, or ultra-marathoner, I don't know. The you third, think she ran more than a marathon and then was like, fuck it, I guess I'll just run a marathon? Well, they don't have an ultra-marathon in the Olympics. Fuck it, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and the third one was the... That's the Pope. Saying, give up on my day. Yeah, I definitely believe that's true. So I'm going to go... So that's all, you think all three of them are true? <laughs> so I, the first seems the most implausible to me. I'll go with the first one. $867 trillion? Yes. Trillion would it, with would it change you if I, if, I, if I said $865 trillion? Would that... N- no, if it were a billion, sure. But I'm thinking the first... I don't think that's the right number. You're wrong. Ooh. Oh. You guys cared about that way more than I thought you would. All right. No, but uh, the Pope said to Catholics that they should give up trolling for Lent. Ah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Whatever. 860, whatever. He just, he wa- I don't think he it was just a made a lawsuit. Oh, right, I don't think he right. made a lawsuit, you know. <laughs> it probably would have been thrown out. I, 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 would I hope. I hope, but who knows. With all these Federalist judges. <laughs> Your third set of stories. Survey finds that 38% of beer-drinking Americans say they will not drink Corona because they are that dumb. 38%, yep. Unless I made that up. (laughs) Story two. Pandemic simulation game Plague, Inc. forced from Apple's app store in China. I don't know. Story three. An Italian man infected with coronavirus after being too embarrassed to leave the Lyft drive with a coughing driver. Well, the first one I know is factually an, uh, a headline because I read the underlying study and, you know, to claim what? it was bad. <laughs> so it, they, the headlines were wrong. It was 34% of people will never drink it and 4% won't drink it because they think of the virus. Mm. And all the headlines got it wrong. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the, the second was... Pandemic. Like, hey, you know that game where it's like yeah, yeah, Madagascar, and, Madagascar and Greenland oh, yeah, never? Yeah. 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 They close all the ports. And that was China? Yeah, China was like, we don't want that. No, that's not happening. And the third one was the Lyft driver? Yeah. It was an Italian? Yes. They were being too polite? <laughs> he was like too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fucking Italians, you know how it is. Number three. Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> Those goddamn Italians that get you every time. Uh, so what actually happened is, is that doctors are pleading with embarrassed hemorrhoid sufferers not to put frozen potatoes up their asses. I, I mean, if, if it's if, like a cool the right shape of potato. I, I think guess. they're cut up. Oh. It's not an entire potato. It's frozen. You know, I'm not one to judge, but uh, there's no picture. I've had hemorrhoids before, and oh man, no, 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 no. Here you go. (laughs) Thank you for the trumpets. We've learned a lot about ourselves tonight. That's important. Anyway, for the final debate, welcome up to the stage, host for the evening, Tom.
There you go. Thank you, Kevin. Once more for Kevin. Come on, a little bit. Just a little bit. All right. So, the final piart. Piart? I was going to say piece, and then I said part, so I said piart. The final piart of the show is the skewer debate when we take the, the topic of the month that one person can't cover and put two people against it. Except, oops, one of our writers uh, is got sick today, so it is going to be just one person. Erica won, Erica won the debate. Um, <laughs> Speaking of that, our first debate performer is an artist, writer, and computer programmer in Chicago. She's co-producer of The Skewer, a kick-ass monthly news comedy show that you're telling all your friends about. She's also a Right Club champion, former headliner at the Green Mills Uptown Poetry Slam, and a, gra- and a Moth Grand Slam contender. But all those achievements pale in comparison to successfully quitting Twitter this year. Erica put the parenthetical hold for applause there, and very rarely are those parentheticals true, but it was. <laughs> you can see her again at Wright Club at March 17th at the High Deck. Please welcome Erica Treisbach. <laughs> Erica, the debate. The world is currently beset by the deadly upper respiratory disease, coronavirus, or COVID-19. The death toll rises, and as it does, misinformation and panic steadily tighten their grip on the planet. It's unclear what any of these coronavirus numbers are accurate, and it's unclear if it will become a catastrophic, catastrophic global pandemic. One thing that is clear, however is that getting coronavirus is extremely badass. (laughs) The question then becomes, for which type of badass person is getting the coronavirus most cool? Coronavirus is for jocks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh... Our other competitor, she had a non-coronavirus illness. Uh, She would have been arguing that coronavirus is for goths, but she decided uh, she was actually too goth to show up. She actually called us Hope Punk, which was honestly very devastating. Uh, So yeah, Erica, you're going to be delivering your opening statements unopposed. I will then be returning to the stage to ask you questions about your topic, and then also questions about the goths. You're going to answer them both, uh, and then you will be giving your uh, conclusion unopposed, and then we will vote to see who wins. (laughs) Are you ready to go? Yes, I am, Tom. Then do it. Fact. Prior to writing this piece, I always thought I was a nerd. I got straight A's, like a nerd. I have corrected my dates on factual errors, <laughs> like a nerd. <laughs> I'm a computer programmer, that is, high nerd. But in writing this piece, I have come to accept that I am a jock. This is my real jujitsu gi. <laughs> I took jujitsu. <laughs> I told myself that it was so I could learn to choke men until they were unconscious or did. (laughs) Died. 
dead. Unconscious or dead. Which was true. But it was also true that I wanted to get abs and bound off the mat like a golden retriever. This is my real sweat band that I have filled with my sweat. I have several spreadsheets that I use to track my gains. I have run three marathons and two official... Yeah, everyone gets quiet. Fuck yeah. And two official half marathons, but for many years, I would run 12 miles in the morning just to, to deal with myself. I have many times in the past altered my diet to build more muscle. You guys, I am a jock. And like all jocks, I love goths. Fact, jocks love goths. We jocks are intensity junkies. That's why we wake up at dawn to run by the lake. That's why we quit masturbating for weeks at a time to build up energy. We want to feel that power. But goths can achieve all that intensity in their minds. They are free from the constraints of these weighted beef balloons. They can feel the darkest and most pure purity just shuffling from one platform boot to the other at the club. To a jock, that's like telekinesis. How do you get there just by thinking about it? Please, goths, let us jocks bear the coronavirus in your stead. Jocks are strong. Jocks have a greater than average volume of blood because Gatorade. Jocks have pristine lungs because Coach would kick our asses if he caught us smoking. Jocks have mommies and girlfriends to provide us with tender ministrations when we fall ill. But goths, goths have anemic little bodies that are not prepared to handle the viral load. Gauze are already constantly nursing a chronic upper respiratory infection caused by smoking too many cloves. Gauze consume a nutritionally void vegan diet of potato chips and black coffee with sugar, which has left their constitutions vulnerable. And despite what many may believe, death is not the gothest thing ever. Goths should be planning their leather and lace funerals, not attending them. Yes, it's true, if we jocks take on this burden that we won't be able to compete at away games, we're going to miss the Olympic trials. There's no way we're going to Tokyo this summer. That's a sacrifice we're willing to make, goths. If goths get the coronavirus, you're not going to get to go to Reykjavik for airwaves this year. You're probably going to die. That's bad. Darkness is for you. A choker necklace with matching corset, that is for you. An Etsy store that sells human bones, that is for you. <laughs> the coronavirus is not for you. The coronavirus is for we meaty boys. The coronavirus is for jocks. And the goth rebuttal is just silence and, and, and not even being there. Wow. Powerful. Damn. That says a lot. That, shows, that goes to show you stuff. Eric, I have a question for you. Yes. An upper respiratory infection like coronavirus famously requires, requires a sufferer to abstain from strenuous activity. Is it possible for a jock to lose their jock status 
through inactivity. Well, there's no way that the coronavirus is stopping us. That's when we talked about isometric exercises. This is when we go on YouTube. This is when we do our exercises at home. We do push-ups. We do pull-ups. We use our own body weight, our massive, meaty body weight, like astronauts did and still do. All right, Erica, you're going to have to shift gears. I'm going to ask you a question for Roxanne. You have to, you're, you're talking about goths now. Coronavirus, coronavirus has an estimated lethality rate of just above 3%. How can a disease so unlikely to kill you be for goths? Uh, well, 3% is 1 in 30. Do you know 30 people? Whoops, one of them's dead. So that's you know, a little intense. Uh. <laughs> There's 30 people in this room. <laughs> Someone's got to go. <laughs> So 3% seems high to me uh, as a goth because I'm good at math. Mm. Goth and math. That's what being a goth is. Goth and math. Gotcha. Erica, back to normal. If you get coronavirus, you have to stay inside all day and feel bad. That's the goth's natural habitat. How can a jock possibly compare to the skill they've spent decades honing. You forget the basement, a classic denizen, an area for jocks to maintain, to rule, to lift weights, to watch TV, to play video games with the boys, to <laughs> pound beers. The basement is where we jocks will rehabilitate. <laughs> love it, love it. Back to goths. You're goth mode now. You've gone gotho mode. Er <laughs> Erica. One of the most famous goth bands is The Cure. The coronavirus famously does not have a cure. <laughs> How Tom, do you Tom always promises that the questions are really fucking stupid. <laughs> How do you explain this incongruity? I'm going to answer in the form of a song. <laughs> I've been looking so long at this virus I saw that I almost forgot that I'm fine. <laughs> I've been thinking that this cough was a probably COVID that I almost forgot that I'm fine and everything's fine. Okay. <laughs> Erica, one final go uh no, jock question. Back to jocks. Some people have suffered trauma at the hands of jocks and are hungry to see a jock fall. Brought low. When a jock gets coronavirus, they'll see it as a sign of weakness and try to tear you down. What is your defense to this? I think the bully jocks actually should just die, though. <laughs> 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 I, 
I'm, when I talk about jocks and jock pride, I'm talking about Nick Centineo from To All the Boys I Loved Before. That's the kind of jock I'm talking about, that kind of pure jock power. The jocks who are kind of like big dogs and like, hey there, little buddy. And <laughs> the jock bullies, they should just go. So it's fine. They should just die. That, I'm, I'm pro that. Okay, okay, okay. Last question. You can answer this in whatever mode you choose. Jocks and goths are both, I wouldn't say enemies. I say they're both inverses, different flavors of inverse of the nerd. Why is it not cool for a nerd to get coronavirus? Why is it not cool for a nerd? Yeah, it's cool for a jock to get coronavirus for reasons you've been explaining. Why is it not cool for a nerd I don't know. This this question's kind of smart, Tom. Um, <laughs> why? Your standards have fallen so far. Why? Why is it cool for a nerd to uncool. get? It, why is it uncool for a nerd to get sick? Because they're like, oh, I'm sick. <laughs> oh, who will take care of me? I don't have a girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> They do be like that. (laughs) Excellent answering. Erica, why don't you take your fucking victory lap? Should you question that gods and jocks are natural allies? Look no further than the popularity of our spiritual children, goth jocks. They are numerous and beloved. They can do push-ups and are comfortable wearing eyeliner and talking frankly about depression. Examples. Keanu Reeves. The Crow. Tessa Thompson. Furiosa. Vin Diesel. Shia LaBeouf. Mr. Spock. I've never seen Doctor Who, but probably most of the Doctors Who. Goth jock hybrids are so powerful that they can choose whether or not to get coronavirus just by manifesting. But for those of us confined to mere jock or mere goth, then the great power of the skewer's collective will must determine our destiny of disease. And audience, I bid you, there can be but one result. For the love of goths, coronavirus must be and must only be for jocks. Damn, a hard-fought debate, but someone has to take home the skewer prize, our lovely, our lovely trophy prize. Who's it going to be? Well, the audience decides. You cheer for the person you think made a better argument. Who thinks that, Eric, that Roxanne, who didn't, who didn't show up, won the debate? Cool. Who thinks that Erica arguing that coronavirus is for jocks, won the debate. Damn, it's a tough call, but I made it. Erica, you won the debate! And thank you all so much for being here at the fucking Skewer, the great show that you love. We're done for tonight. We are a podcast, as we mentioned. So if you want to hear some comedy that's no longer relevant, you can go back and listen to the back catalog. Uh, and we are here the first Wednesday of every 
first Wednesday of every month. Our next show is Wednesday, April 1st, The Fool Day. Yeah. We're going to tell jokes for the first time ever. Um, yeah, that's everything. Thank you. Uh, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can always come to a live show every first Wednesday of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. If you like the podcast, you can rate us on wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, subscribe, maybe. We like that. Uh, if you want to know more or want to be on the show, please email us at skewerchicago at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>